O oh God, as we begin a new year, we commit this year to you. Everything that it holds, everything that you will lead us to do. Oh, Father, we're so thankful that our lives are in your hands, that you are the one who knows the end from the beginning. You have a particular plan for us during this year, and I pray that we will not stray off of that plan or off of that path, but we will walk hand in hand with you. And Lord, I pray that this will be a year in which we will see many of those for whom we have been praying brought truly into the kingdom of God. Lord, I know there are many here who have loved ones, friends, neighbors, who have yet to give their hearts to you. And Father, I pray that you will break down the walls of resistance, that you will reveal the truth of who you are to these hearts, and that you will bring them to yourself. May this be a year of great rejoicing. Lord, I pray that you will minister now to each heart and life according to your will this morning. Guide us in our study of your word. I pray that throughout the Sunday school this morning in each and every class that you will be divinely present in a powerful way, changing lives according to your great will. And Father, as the second service is transpiring at this hour too, be very present there, we ask. We ask you to magnify your name in our presence this day, in Jesus' name, amen. After 10 increasingly devastating plagues, you remember Pharaoh finally released the slaves, the Hebrews. But you also will remember, as we studied towards the end of last year, that Moses didn't even get the Israelites out of the land before Pharaoh changed his mind. A man who had a very slippery mind, obviously, changing it very quickly and very often. And he ordered his army in pursuit of Israel before they could actually escape into the wilderness. And one of the great moments of history was that moment when the Israelites were camped there before the Sea of Reeds, as the scripture calls it. And the army of Pharaoh had come to overtake them. And, and God had blocked the path of Pharaoh's army by moving his cloud out in front of them and stopping them. But Israel still felt trapped between the enemy, the Egyptian army over there, and, and the great sea of reeds behind them. And it was at that moment that Moses made one of the great uh, pronouncements of history, obviously God speaking through Moses, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. <laughs> a truth that is so important for us, I think, throughout our lives, and will be important, I think, through this year in many ways. Be still and see the salvation of the Lord. They were trapped as far as they were concerned. As far as anybody looking on the situation, it would have been help hopeless. But God, of course, miraculously created a path through the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, whatever the body of water was. God created a path through that body of water. He dried out a, a strip of land, who knows how wide, miles wide probably, for this large group of people to across safely to the Sinai. Pharaoh, as he saw that path open up and as the Israelites were retreating off into the distance, ordered his army in after them. And they, they pursued in 
hoping to overtake the Israelites, and if nothing else, to gather the spoil. And we might think, what in the world spoil would a bunch of slaves have? But you remember what happened to them before they left the land? Everyone asked of his neighbor, the Egyptians, for gold and silver, and they were given it. So they had a great deal of spoil as they moved out across the dry path through the sea. They were intending to capture Israel. But you remember the account, God rather disturbed the Egyptians as they made their motion after them. And then, of course, he brought the great towering walls of water crashing down upon the Egyptian army. And this was God's final judgment upon Egypt at that time. A judgment that, that rendered Egypt, in effect, probably powerless for quite a while before Pharaoh could regenerate an army and be prepared to even defend his land. Let's begin reading this morning with the 15th chapter of Exodus at verse 1. Here we have a psalm, a song, if you will. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Pharaoh's chariots in his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. Thou dost send forth thy burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. And at the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind, <clears throat> and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness? awesome in praises, working wonders. Thou didst stretch thy, out thy right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In thy loving kindness thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength thou hast guided them into holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they are motionless as a stone. Until thy people pass over, O Lord, until thy people pass over, whom thou hast purchased. Thou wilt bring them and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. The place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thy dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and horsemen, went into the sea. 
And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. A powerful, powerful passage of the majesty and the might of God. Something that Israel was just beginning to learn. <coughs> and they were learning it in a, in, in a majestic way. Some of that psalm, of course, is prophetic. Some of that psalm is looking ahead because how, how would even Moses know except by God's putting into his mind that uh, the inhabitants of Philistia are in anguish, that the chiefs of Edom were dismayed, that the leaders of Moab trembling grips them, that the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. I mean, they're not even near those lands yet. That will be true as, as they approach and as they hear of what God has done here. In fact, I made mention of this before, I think, that 200 years later, or 400, I forget the exact time frame now, when the, uh, let's see, it would have been, would have been about 300 or so years later, when the Israelites' uh, Ark of the Covenant had been carried off by the Philistines, and it was causing great disaster in Philistia after they had won it in a battle, and, and Eli, the, the priest, had died, and so forth. They, in, in that very tragedy, the Philistines remembered that God, the God who was represented in this ark, was the God who had brought Israel across the Red Sea by mighty miracle. I mean, the Philistines remembered that 300 years later. So obviously God is demonstrating who he is in a great and, and majestic way here. And this is a song, a psalm which Moses has composed and which Israel is singing as they stand there looking back across that sea. The gory part, of course, being with the corpses of the Egyptians washing up on the shore. Tragedy for the Egyptians. Victory for Israel. Won by whom? By God and by God alone. It's a psalm of praise for his mighty deliverance. It's echoed, of course, in many of the Psalms as you read them by David and Asaph and others later on. Same type of presentation here. This, this song was probably either sung or, or possibly chanted, and it seems like there was, uh, it was done so antiphonally. As you go on and, and you see that we're told that Miriam here, in, in the verses 21 and 20 and 21, <coughs> that she led the women out dancing and singing. And what did they sing? They sang, sing unto the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and, the ri and his rider he has hurled into the sea. That's sort of the opening phrase of the whole psalm. And it would seem that what's happening is that, that the men would sing the stanza and the women would echo antiphonally this verse or this chorus. And then they would sing the next, and then the women would interject this again. And you could just imagine this antiphonal singing between the men and the women out there. And the scripture tells us that uh, she, she led them out with the timbrel. And so they're all out uh, playing this instrument and singing this song. We're told a little bit about Miriam here. 
uh, something that we wouldn't really otherwise know. We're told in this passage that she was a prophetess. Um, the same word is used here, the feminine form of Nabi, which is the uh, Hebrew term for prophet, uh, indicating that apparently she had some sort of prophetic gift, whatever that might be. But we notice also in this passage she is called Aaron's sister, but not Moses' sister. And that's kind of interesting when you think about it, because she is very much Moses' sister. But I think the reason is that she was to rank alongside Aaron, but not alongside Moses. Moses was God's chosen leader, and he alone was God's chosen leader. He would be the human mediator of the Old Covenant of the covenant that would be given on Mount Sinai. And Aaron and Miriam would not rank alongside him in the carrying out of that mediation and in the work of leadership that God had assigned. This becomes quite evident a little bit later on when, in a moment of foolishness, Miriam and Aaron decide that they ought to share responsibility with Moses and stand alongside him as kind of a troika or a triumvirate, uh, a leadership of three. And God made it very clear that was not his plan because he struck Miriam with leprosy. And you may remember that and we'll get to that one day down the line. And both Miriam and Aaron were put in their place. They were in important positions of leadership, but they were not to share the position that Moses had in leading Israel during this particular time. The women were singing and dancing with timbrels. What was a timbrel? Well, the best we can tell was it was a percussion instrument, probably something like a tambourine, uh, something of that order. Uh, what is very interesting, and of course has nothing to do with the value of it, is it is never mentioned as an instrument used in official worship before or in the celebration of the tabernacle or of the temple. Many instruments are mentioned, but the timbrel is not. I'd like for us to read beginning at verse 22 of the same chapter. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation. There he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Celebration was over. The victory had been won. The Israelites had no fear of the Egyptians any longer. But now they had to turn their face to the southeast and head off into the wilderness. Now, if you've ever seen pictures of or some of the satellite shots of the Sinai, it's not a terribly inviting place. It's very rocky, very dry, very barren. 
Fortunately, there are these oases that we will read about. They're going into the wilderness of Shur. That whole desert region is divided biblically into many different wildernesses, and they had specific names for the local area. But as far as we're concerned, it's one big, vast desert for the most part. If you follow the Sahara Desert all the way across from the Atlantic, you've got basically the same kind of climate stretches right across the uh, Sinai and the Arabian Peninsula. And it even goes clear over into Iran. I mean, it's one big, dry, rather hos inhospitable region. They're, they've traveled three days, we're told, away from the site where they sang the great song <coughs> unto God of the victory, and water was running out. Now, if you're traveling out into the desert, the one thing you surely don't want to run out, to have run out, is water. It is said that uh, in, for example, the Sahara Desert and many of the other great hot deserts of the world, that you cannot survive 48 hours without water. It's just so desiccating and so hot. In fact, I have read and I can believe that without some kind of cover, you can't even survive 24 hours in the Sahara uh, on a normal day because the sun is just, you know, merciless as it beats down from generally a totally cloudless sky. And of course, ground temperatures can rise to ridiculous heights. I mean, literally, you could fry an egg on the ground. And so they're going out into this wilderness and water is running out. But in the distance, they see an oasis. And so expectations begin to rise as they're coming to this oasis where they can regenerate their water supply. But they quickly discovered that the water was non-potable. It was undrinkable. It was bitter. And so the name of the oasis is Bitter. Mara, Bitter. It's the name they give to the oasis. As they would do many times subsequently, and if you've spent much time studying through these chapters, you know, they began to grumble. They began to grumble to Moses and to gripe about the lack of water. You brought us out here and look, we're running out of water and what do we got here? The stuff we can't even drink. You know, water, water all around us, but not a drop to drink, as would be later said. Just three days before, just three days before, <laughs> God had stood the water up one end and they had walked between towering walls of water and dry land. So God is going to bring them out here miraculously destroying the enemy army so they can all die of thirst. That makes a lot of sense. But, you know, if you're in that situation and the water is running out and your children are crying for thirst and you begin to worry and you begin to look at the lack of water, it's so easy to forget what God has already done. How quickly do we forget God's blessing when we begin to face a difficult circumstance, especially when we can't seem to figure a way out? We like to figure our own way out of situations, don't we? But God doesn't always put us in a situation where we can figure our way out. He often puts us in a box canyon, if, it, if you will, and says, okay, now what are you going to do? What Israel is doing here is reflecting the basic faithlessness of the human race. We are basically a faithless people. Uh, you know, mankind is basically a faithless people. I mean, we may have faith, but we don't have it in God for the most part. 
So what they're doing is acting with great immaturity. And they are refusing to consider all that God has done. I mean, you know, you're getting to be thirsty and the water's running low and you don't know where any more water's going to come from. Do you sit down and reflect on the greatness of God and all the wonderful things that he has done? Or do you worry and have anxiety about where this water's going to come from? What they have just gone through is probably one of the most dramatic moments of all of human history. What they have witnessed over the past several months, 10 fantastic plagues that have destroyed Egypt and yet left Israel untouched, miraculously brought through the Red Sea, out into the wilderness, freed after hundreds of years of captivity and slavery. And yet, in the midst of it all, they cannot believe in the God who's done all this. The only periods of greater divine intervention in human history than this period might be the Noahic Flood, which was obviously worldwide in its impact, and certainly the events that are spoken of in the book of Revelation. But between those two great events, what other period of time did God demonstrate himself more powerfully and more really than he did for Israel in this six-month period about 3,400 years ago? What we have here is people who have all of their emotional and spiritual energy used up focusing on the problem rather than on the problem solver. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that characteristic of who we are? How are we going to get water in this vast desert? They had always lived by a water supply. They had lived by the Nile River. The water was always there. But now, where would they find it? Fortunately, they had a leader who was not carried away by this. He didn't listen to all their gripes and say, oh my goodness, we are in a difficult situation, are we? I don't know what we're going to do, you know. We're going to have to call the nearest well driller or something here to uh, get out of this problem. But no, Moses knows who the proven source was. And so he goes to the proven source. And he cries out to God. And does God say, oh Moses, what are you crying out to me for, you know? Just figure it out for yourself. No. <laughs> God answers him immediately. Now, does God always do that? No. I've prayed many prayers and uh, haven't seen immediate answers. But God answered him instantly. And the scripture says he showed him a tree. Now, let me just say, first of all, that the unmodified Hebrew word here does not mean necessarily an actual tree. It could mean just a piece of wood lying around, a log or whatever. So we don't know whether it was a living piece of tree or a tree or a, a piece of dead wood or whatever it was. That's not important. But he showed him this piece of wood, whatever it was, and had him throw it into the spring. And the water became instantly potable. <coughs> I think that there's a comparison here. You think later to the situation of the bronze serpent. When the Israelites have sinned and all these fiery serpents coming in and are biting them and God tells Moses to make this bronze servant put a serpent and put it up on a pole and if they look they will live. Was there any healing virtue in that bronze serpent? No. Was there any healing virtue in this wood? No. 
The healing was in the power of God. It had nothing to do with the wood, the tree, or whatever it was. Delich, who gives one of the classic commentaries, states that the Bedouins who know this neighborhood are not acquainted with any such tree or with any other means of making bitter water sweet. And this power was hardly inherent in the tree itself, but was imparted to it through the word and power of God. So it was God who miraculously transformed the water, not the tree. You know, somebody could think, well, it was a certain kind of tree. You put it in there, it soaked all the bad stuff out. Instantly? I hardly think so. I mean, we're talking about slacking the thirst of two million plus people. <laughs> Go take a big piece of wood <laughs> to clean up that much water. So it was obviously the miraculous transformation that God took place. What was the purpose of the wood? The purpose of the wood was as an aid to faith. A touchstone, as it were. Just as the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness was a touchstone of faith. It was a point of focus. It was not the healer. God was the healer. But he used this particular implement to, to give them something to focus on physical, that they could see. And that helped to stimulate their faith. Can you think of a famous Old Testament character who named herself Mara? Naomi, yeah. Why did she call herself Mara? Remember, they had gone from the Bethlehem area over to Moab because there was a great drought. And there the two daughters had married Moabite men. And then Naomi's husband had died, the sons-in-law had died, and she was left with the... Her sons had died. She was left with two daughters-in-law. And she says, the Lord has treated me in a bitter way, therefore I'm not Naomi, I am bitter. I am Mara. But God, of course, changed that, didn't he? Miraculously worked for Mara. I think there are times when we can feel like we are Mara. Life is hard and life is bitter. And difficult times will come. And I know some of you have been through really hard year in 1995. And I pray and trust that 1996 will be radically different. But I think we need to always be prepared for the springs named Mara that will be along the way. Because God will touch and heal those springs. Maybe instantly, maybe not. But the healing will come. And God will give the victory. And as we continue studying through this passage, we're going to see that this is because we're looking or dealing with Yahweh Rapha, the Lord that heals. And the importance of that healing is, is not just to, to make snake bites go away, but the total healing of body, mind, and spirit. And lifting us up so that we will one day be a part of his kingdom in reality, just as we are now by faith. The situation at the Oasis of Mara was a test of faith. God had promised, I will take you to the promised land. Now, we've looked at this before. What was the promised land to them? Well, to the Israelites of that day, the promised land was no place they'd ever seen because it was generations since anybody had been to the promised land. They only knew it by hearsay. And, uh, I mean, think about it. We're talking about people who were slaves for several hundred years. They were probably mostly not even educated, very highly at least. 
And uh, so what, what did they know about the promised land? Just some place, some nebulous place God was going to lead them to. God had made these promises to take them there. He had performed great miracles to get them to this very point. All that he'd done in Egypt, bringing them through the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, and now the, the, the healing of the waters at Mara. How were they going to learn to trust him? How could they learn to trust God unless they came to Red Seas and Springs of Mara? Unless they came to difficult times. We don't trust God if everything's going well. We've got incomes that won't quit. We don't know what to do with all our money, you know. And, and we've got this robust health. And all our kids are, are just wonderful examples of what kids ought to be. And, you know, everything is just glorious. I know I'm not talking about anybody here, but <laughs> if such were the situation, what would be the reason to have faith in God? Everything's going well. Obviously, I'm, I'm you know, doing everything right. But, but God allows the hard places to come because he knows that that's the only way we're going to trust him. And it's only as we trust him that we can help others to trust him too. And that's why he leaves us here, in part. God could have changed the waters of Mara before the Israelites ever got there, right? God didn't need any Moses to throw some wood in the spring. God could have made it so there wasn't a bitter spring to start with. And then there would have been no griping, no aggregation, agitation, <laughs> aggravation, whatever, no outcry. We've just been smooth sailing. Oh, good, sweet water. We're glad we got here. No griping against Moses. Everything would have been just glorious. But God was endeavoring to build a nation of believers. It was his goal to build a nation of believers who would be obedient to him regardless of the circumstances. And, and you know, I think we've got to always keep that in mind. God wants us to trust in him regardless of the circumstances. And for some of you, the circumstances during this past year have been very trying and difficult. But in, in most cases that I know of, God has proven himself faithful. And God has strengthened you through these times. And that's a testimony to, to who he is and what he wants to do. If we are a nation of believers who trust in God in every circumstance, then God will be glorified and we will be a witness. You've heard it said many times, <clears throat> Jesus said that we will be his witnesses. It doesn't say there that you've got to go to a class. I'm not knocking any classes on witnessing. They are fine. But it's not saying that you've got to do that first to be a witness. As soon as our lives are transformed, we are a witness. Because the Holy Spirit indwells us, and He can't be capped. <laughs> he can't be hidden. He will reflect Himself out of our lives. You've heard it said so many times, the words of St. Francis, that uh, we're supposed to be a witness in the world and sometimes even use words if necessary. You know. we, we have it so much emphasis on the words that we forget that the first foundation of witness is the life. If the life doesn't reflect the truth, the words are meaningless. They're hypocrisy. 
But if the life reflects the truth, then people are drawn to Jesus as they see him in our lives. And then the witness bears fruit. The verbal witness bears fruit. So that's what he's doing with Israel. How are they going to be a verbal witness if, if they aren't believers who trust God in every circumstance to begin with? I mean, after all, who's their God if he can't save them from the difficult things in life? They had to experience God's direct deliverance many, many times. How many times do you and I have to learn the same lesson over again? <laughs> God can do something wonderful for us, and boy, are we strong in our faith. And then something hits us, and you know, we're griping about things all over again. But then God proves himself faithful again. It's what he does for Israel, over and over. Notice in this passage, he doesn't even chastise Israel. He doesn't say to Moses, line the bunch of bums up and I'm going to zap them. You know, he doesn't say anything like that. He just does it. He just does it without a word of reproof against Israel at this time. They are immature and he's building their faith. And he will do it time and time again by experiencing God's direct deliverance from adversities. He was showing to them that he was their great physician. He was their shield. He was their deliverer. Paul later would recognize this in many instances. And one which I thought was appropriate here is a statement that he makes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. A very well-known verse where Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am, con am, am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Through these difficult times, and through all the suffering I have been through, Paul is saying, I have come to know him, and to have absolute assurance that my, the commitment of my life to him will be guarded until that day. That everything that I have believed is absolutely true. And the reward of God will be upon me at the completion of the course of the race of my life. You and I believe in God without seeing him. You and I believe in God probably without seeing any miracles like the dividing of the Red Sea. Do you believe this really happened? Did God really do this or is this just a story? Is this just a, an exaggerated statement by Moses who had some kind of, uh, you know, self-ego problem, you know, and he wanted to be, appear grand and so he created this great... Or did God really part a major body of water, whatever it was, be it the Red Sea or whatever, and lead Israel through on dry land. Did he really do that? I've never seen it happen. Have you? We believe God without seeing him. Just as Jesus said to Thomas, you have put your hand and you have seen, but blessed are those who have never seen and yet believe. He was talking about us and others in the 2,000 years since that time. But our faith is bolstered by what Luke described in the first part of the first chapter of Acts where he said, referred to many infallible proofs, as it's 
written in the King James. Have you and I experienced many infallible proofs? Well, we may not have ever seen a Red Sea part, but I believe it. Absolutely. And I believe that God did everything that Moses describes here and that God did it in, my, in, 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 a, in a fantastic way. And although I can't say that with my senses I have experienced those proofs, I believe them, therefore they are proofs to me. And then, of course, in my daily life I have seen what God has done. In many instances, it may not have been God miraculously reaching down and lifting someone off the death, deathbed, but it's what God does in the lives of those who suffer the loss of that one who dies. That's the real miracle. Because, humanly speaking, we have every right to be bitter, to blame God, to say, you didn't, weren't there for me when I needed you. But to, to have our faith stronger, this illustrates the truth of who God really is. After transforming the waters here, God gave to Israel a statute, which is one of the great promises of the Bible. Looking back at uh, verse 26 again. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, to do what is right in his sight, and to give ears to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. God is here proclaiming conditions that echo down through the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament over and over again. If you will trust and obey, I will bless. It's one of the greatest themes of all Scripture, if not the main theme of all Scripture. If you will trust and obey, I will bless. Miraculously bless. The specific promise attached here was that he would put none of the diseases upon Israel or the judgments he put upon Egypt upon Israel at this particular time. He says, because I am Yahweh Rapha, I am the Lord your healer. I think it needs to be pointed out though here that the Lord is not giving a blanket promise that no Israelite from this moment on would ever be sick or have any problems. It was a promise by God to Israel that if they would listen and obey His word, that He would not send on them the plagues which He sent upon Egypt as judgment upon that land. He does categorically declare, though, that I am your healer. The word is Rapha for healer. That word is used in the Old Testament in many different contexts. And that helps us to understand that he is referring to more than physical healing when he uses that term, but actually referring to, above all, spiritual healing. Many of us don't like to hear that. We want to think, oh, I just, God is our healer, and we just say, oh, God, you heal me, and he'll heal me. You know, it's like lightning striking. God has done that many times. But a careful study of Scripture makes it clear, I think, that spiritual deliverance is the main theme of Scripture. Spiritual deliverance, not physical healing, not well-being. 
In fact, God sometimes will really upset our well-being because he's got some greater goal in mind and we're not getting there because we're having too much well-being. <laughs> Maybe. Most of, us, most of us could probably say, well, I don't fit that category. <laughs> God heals the physical body. God heals emotions. God heals us psychologically. But his great plan of the ages is to bring men and women into his eternal kingdom. Thus the focus is upon the healing of the soul. The focus of all these promises is on the healing of the soul. If our souls are right, then God will glorify himself through our bodies and through our minds according to his great and sovereign will. If it be his will that we be raised up and we pray in faith, he will touch us physically. He will touch us emotionally. He will touch us psychologically. We have many, many examples of it in Scripture. But it must be in accordance with the greater plan of our spiritual well-being and of the exaltation of his kingdom. I'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says... Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. God will glorify himself in our bodies as we are committed to him and as we trust in him. And many times that will include physical healing, emotional healing, psychological healing. But ultimately, it's spiritual healing. We all one day face the time when, when death comes. Unless the Lord comes to us soon, we all face that. Does that mean that God's promises that I am the Lord who heals you are not true? Absolutely not. Because we will pass into glory where we will be totally in every wit, every molecule, if there are molecules in eternity, probably there aren't, whole and well and healed and delivered. We, we have to view it from God's eternal perspective and not from our little myopic uh, moment here where all we can see is the problem in front of our face. Got to see beyond the waters of Mara to the great picture that God provides. After the miracle at Mara, we're told in, in Exodus 15 that they moved on to an oasis called Elam, E-L-I-M. The word Elam means terebinth. A terebinth was a tree that is very, very similar, apparently, to our oak tree. So this spring was noted for its terebinths. We're, we're told that there were 12 springs in this oasis. We're also told that there were 70 Tamar date palms. You might wonder who bothered to count them. Why did they even make note of them? Well, they make note of a date palm because a date palm is a very special tree, especially if you're in the wilderness. <laughs> they didn't have seized candies or whatever to take along with them, you know, for a little treat. And, and the date was a wonderful treat for those people. Dates are still used by the people who live in the deserts and around these oases as, as actually a, a staple part of their diet. But a dried date is almost like concentrated sugar. You know, most of you know that. 
and uh, so it was very, very desirable, and so note was made of that particular tree being there also. Well, we don't have time to develop the 16th chapter, but let me just read the first three verses because <laughs> we get to see what this pendulum is like. Here's Israel, here's Israel, here's Israel, here's Israel, you know. Faith, no faith, faith, no faith. Thank God, grumble, thank God, grumble. <laughs> Exodus 16, the first three verses, Then they set out from Elam, this wonderful place with the 70 date palms and the 12 springs of water, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. That's kind of an interesting title, isn't it? Wilderness of sin, the way it comes out in English. Uh, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after the departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Right. Saved them from a mighty army, miraculously transformed the water, so now we can starve them to death out there in the wilderness. We're, we're supposed to be known as Homo sapien sapien, which means thinking, thinking man. <laughs> well, when it boils right down to the root, we are Homo non sapien non sapien, I think, a good deal of the time. And it's not only illogical, it demonstrates no faith, obviously. But God is so patient, which I know he is with us. And he is in the process of building faith in us, as he was building faith in Israel. And even though he will come to the point where he'll say, all right, Moses, line them up. I got something to say to them. <laughs> but he didn't always do that. But as, as we look at this passage next week, we're going to particularly focus on what it means to grumble. What does this word really mean? What's such a big deal about grumbling? I mean, we all have done it, right? Grumble, grumble. About something. And what's interesting, of course, here is that the ultimate object of their grumbling was not Moses, was not Aaron. They were sort of the intermediates who got it the first. Their ultimate target was God. And that, of course, is flagrant sin. And, and we'll look at that next week.